It is always a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, just uh, as Pastor Charlie was alluding to, we've always had a wonderful relationship with Calvary Chapel for many years, uh, going back actually about 15 years. And uh, uh, some of you know that my wife's family used to live here. They live in, in Austin now. Uh, and so we've, we've been coming to El Paso since the late 1970s and have gotten uh, just, uh, it's one of our favorite places to be. An interesting thing over the years uh, that has happened, we travel literally around the world speaking in different churches, and uh, I, I'm a missionary. In spite of the fact that I have a, a very responsible position with our ministry, I'm a missionary, just like, you know, someone getting right out of Bible college. And so we go around speaking in churches and, and raising support and developing a, a team of prayer partners and the area all over the world that is our strongest support has always been El Paso, Texas. And so uh, since we were going to be spending a week here, I asked Pastor Charlie if, if he would allow us to give a ministry update uh, to our prayer partners and, and our supporters and possibly our future supporters. So I want to invite you to come tomorrow to the cafe at 7 o'clock. Uh, we're going to be giving a ministry update, uh, talk about what's kind of what's going on in the world, and mostly have an informal time of Q&A where you can just ask me anything you want, and uh, I'll be happy to, to, to answer those questions and talk about uh, our ministry and what we're doing. So please, uh, some of you, how many of you actually got an invitation? Let me just see. Okay. Well, the rest of you, I, I don't want to slight you. Uh, please forgive me, but uh, you're invited as well. And uh, just come, there's uh, going to be some cookies and coffee served in the cafe, and uh, it'll be a, a good time, an informal time, to just talk about ministry, okay? Uh, the, the message I'm going to share with you this morning, uh, and I, I shared it last night at the first service uh, on Saturday night, is not an easy message for me to preach. And as Pastor Charlie said to me last night after the service, it's not an easy message for you to hear. But at the same time, God has really impressed on my heart the importance of this because we, as a church, are losing some perspective. And, and I think part of it has to do with how important Israel is to the church and how important the Jewish people are to the plan of God. So, I want to talk about this idea of who are the Christ killers. And where I get that uh, topic from, uh, I was going on Facebook a while ago, actually not that long ago. And uh, this is, if you, if you don't know, this is a church called Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, these are the crazies in the name of Christ who, who picket uh, veterans' funerals, uh, just have all of this hateful stuff that is so unchristlike. And they happened to one day pick out a Jewish community center in Kansas City, I think it was, uh, where they decided uh, to pick it in front. And their main theme was that the Jews killed Christ and we ought to hate the Jews. Uh, in fact, God hates the Jews. Everybody knows that. And uh, it's called, what's the, what's the word when you hate your own family? Uh, I'm trying to think. Anyway, uh, in the middle of all that, just looking at that, there's, if you look at the, the lady who's standing there, she's giving out uh, brochures, there's a website called thejewskilledchrist.com. And basically filled with all of this hateful stuff. And, you know, as we were, as a ministry, talking about anti-Semitism in the world, and particularly overseas, it is reaching a point that we haven't seen literally since before World War II. And you know what happened with that one. So we're heading to uh, really a time when the people of the Jewish Messiah and Savior of the world are going to need to stand and, and take a stand. And I wanted to talk about that. Uh, this was also on Facebook actually last week. Uh, we have a one of, one of our staff uh, who's out in Seattle, Washington, uh, is from Paris. 
And someone sent this to him. This is, a, if you haven't heard of this store, it's a, an Israeli cosmetic store called Sephora. And, and Pastor Charlie told me that you have it here in JCPenney's. But uh, in Paris, someone vandalized a store, a Sephora store, and in French wrote, don't buy perfume here, it's made in Israel. Uh, I just noticed on Facebook last night, uh, coming out of a conference called Christ at the Checkpoint, uh, which is an anti-Israeli, sort of pro-Palestinian Christian political conference, uh, it says, stop Israeli apartheid. In other words, uh, they're equating Israel's being in the land the same way they equated to apartheid back in South Africa. In other words, this is a Palestinian country and Israel is nothing but an occupier and they should be out. And Christians should be doing that. So we're really sort of drawing lines in the sand, I think. And and I, I wanted to kind of not skirt around the issue but deal with the reality of what we're talking about and share a personal experience. I was going to Hebrew school, uh, Jewish boys and girls study in Hebrew school to prepare for their bar mitzvah. It's their rite of passage, similar to a confirmation, where you sort of become a member of the community. And I did that for five years, and I was about 11 or 12, and our Hebrew school was after school two days a week and on Sunday mornings. And I was coming out of Hebrew school on Sunday mornings, still wearing my kippah, my yarmulke, on my head. So... I was clearly standing there as a Jew, and a bunch of young toughs in my neighborhood were coming out of the local Catholic church, and they kind of gathered around me, saw the thing on my head, and one of them grabbed it, and they began flipping it around, you know, like a Frisbee. And uh, they were kind of taunting me. Uh, As you can see, I'm a pretty big man, and, and I was always big for my age, so I wasn't afraid of any of them. And so I I found the person closest to me and grabbed him and took his arm and shoved it behind his back and told them if they didn't give the yarmulke back to me, I would break his arm. And and he's yelling, and they they gave it back to me. And uh, after they, they left, they said a few choice curse words at me, and the one who, whose arm I was pushing behind his back said, you're nothing but a Christ killer. And it was the first time I had ever heard that. And so I went home that day and asked my dad, what was he talking about? Christ killer. I said, Jesus was around 2,000 years ago. How could I be a Christ killer? And my dad said, they've been blaming us, talking about they Christians have been blaming us for that for almost 2,000 years. And so it, it kind of, stuck in my head, that term Christ killers. And uh, over the years, having become a Christian and and being in ministry, one of the things that we encourage people as you share with Jewish people is understand, as a Christian, Jesus Christ, I understand what that means. To a Jewish person, they hear Jesus Christ and you killed him. Christ killer seems to resonate. Now the word Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one, which actually translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. It's just a a long way of saying it's a lot easier calling Jesus the Messiah than uh, to a Jewish person. There's nothing wrong with using Jesus Christ. Don't stop using that terminology. But as as a way of sensitivity, understand that Messiah is, to Jewish people, something that makes sense to them because they know about the Messiah. Uh, And it avoids the, the baggage of Christ killer. I actually believe that Jesus was Italian because the only people that I knew that believed in him were Italian. And so I thought his name was Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Not an Italian name, but nevertheless, the only people I knew who believed in him from the neighborhood that I grew up in New York uh, were Italians. So I had no concept of Jesus' Jewishness, no concept of anything related to that. And one of the things that that I share often, uh, because I'm asked this question, probably the one question that I'm asked more than any, and so if if you want, we're thinking of asking me this question, 
tomorrow night. I'll, I'll answer it for you here. Why don't the Jews get it? Why is it so hard for them to accept Jesus as Messiah, as their Savior? There's only, in the whole world, there's only about 15 million Jewish people. We're, we have, what, almost 4 billion in the world, and of that 4 billion, 15 million are Jews. So you can see what a small part of the population we are. Of that 15 million, about 150,000, 1% are professing believers in Jesus. So you can see the numbers are very, very small. And so that question I'm asked all the time, why don't they get it? Why don't they understand what is so obvious to me that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures? And the answer is twofold. Number one, there's a spiritual part of that where Paul writes in Romans that there's a mystery, that a blindness, a hardening in part, so not all, but some, actually most, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So during this time where we are in what we would call the church age, God is dealing with the world through the church and the people who are getting saved primarily are not Jews, but Gentiles from the nations. And so just out of curiosity, how many of you are Gentile? If you're not sure, you are. And so that's part one of the answer, that, that there is a blindness, a, a kind of a, a callousness to their heart that is spiritual in nature. But praise God, uh, there's still a remnant getting saved, and I, and I have the blessing and privilege of being part of that remnant of Jewish believers. So that's part one. Part two is a little more difficult to come to terms with. The church has treated the Jews historically very badly. We have 2,000 years of very bad church history to overcome. Now, granted, some of it you can say they weren't really true Christians, but you can't say that completely. And I want to read for you, this is out of, out of our book called uh, How to Introduce Your Jewish Friends to, their, to the Messiah. Now, let me just read uh, I lost my spot. This is some famous church people. How many have heard of St. Jerome? St. Jerome was a, received sainthood from the Catholic Church he was a brilliant scholar. He actually, uh, in the fourth century, translated the Bible into Latin. And so he was working with Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament in Latin and got to actually live with a rabbi for over a year and shared his faith, but it was rejected. Jerome, as he was not received well by the rabbi afterwards because he told him that without Jesus, he's, he's not going to go to heaven. He wrote this. He says, God hates the Jews, and I hate the Jews. And this is in a church history book called History of the Christian Church. But God, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, said to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And if you remember the book of Jeremiah, it's written to Israel at their lowest point spiritually. They were so steeped into idolatry that God ultimately would take them out of the promised land for a generation to teach them a lesson so that they would understand how wrong idolatry was. Yet God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. One of the most famous early church fathers was a man named John Chrysostom. He was known as the Golden Throat. He was famous for his oratory. And he wrote this, he, he lived uh, again in the 4th century, 344 to 40, 407 AD. Jews are the most worthless of men. They're lecherous, greedy, rapacious. They worship the devil. It is incumbent on all Christians to hate Jews. This is one of our church fathers. And if you look at the church history books, he has a very 
prominent place in the early church. We read uh, of Cyril, patriarch of Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt was a very important part, played a very important part in early Christianity, also played an important part in the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And what, what's known as the Septuagint was actually uh, took place in Alexandria, Egypt. So the patriarch of Alexandria, he's, uh, it's written about him. In the year 415, he fell upon the synagogues of the very numerous Jews with armed force. He put some to death, drove out the rest, and exposed their property to the excited multitude. So he decided that it was incumbent upon him to just kill Jews, that it was what God wanted him to do. A man named Clovis, who was the chieftain of the Franks, I take that to mean some sort of French or German area, was converted to Catholicism. He declared that if he had been present at the crucifixion, he and his Franks would have killed all the Jews and taken Jesus off the cross and saved his life. Now there's someone who knows how, where his salvation comes from. And the interesting thing that in the early church, nobody refuted him. No, none of the church leaders said anything to him about him, about the necessity for the cross. How many of you remember the, the old movies with Errol Flynn where he played King Richard the Lionhearted, the heroic man who was part of the Crusades? Well, King Richard the Lionhearted expelled the Jews out of England in the year 1189, confiscated their property. Thomas Aquinas, considered by many one of the foremost Catholic scholars in, of the medieval period, wrote in 1247, it would be perfectly licit to hold the Jews because of their crucifying our Lord in perpetual servitude. And, and if any of you have a, come from a Catholic background, you know that until a recent Vatican Council by Pope John Paul II, that was part of church dogma all the way back uh, into the late 20th century. So you can see the history of the church as it relates to the Jews is not good. The, the great champion of the Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, was known to have a special love for, for Jewish people in the early part of his life. And then afterwards, when he became older and Jewish people rejected the gospel, he turned on them and wrote a pamphlet called The Jews and Their Lies that Hitler quoted extensively uh, in supporting what he was doing regarding uh, the final solution. So you can see that there is this issue of should we treat the Jews badly for their killing Christ, for their being Christ killers. And so over time I decided that I would develop a message that really deals with this issue. Who are the Christ killers? And can we make a biblical, and that's important, a biblical case for the Jews killing Christ? So let's look at... Uh, The first aspect. And my first conclusion is we can, taking some portions of the scriptures sort of out of context, if you will, but nevertheless making a case that the Jews killed Christ. And first, let's look at the Gospels. So if you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be reading verses 20 to 23. And this is, you know, just before Jesus is killed, he brings Jesus and Barabbas out before the crowd. Remember that? He, he had the uh, option to pardon someone because it was a feast day, and as part of the feast, he could show mercy from the Roman Empire. And he thought, after his wife had this dream and she told him, don't get involved with this man, he thought this was his way, politically, to uh, kind of 
wash his hands of the whole incident. And so he presents Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious murderer. And he presents the two of them before the crowd. But we read verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders, in other words, the religious leaders of Israel, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. And I've read some commentators who said part of that persuasion was actually bribing the people, <coughs> excuse me, to uh, scream out, you know, crucify him. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And so you can make the case here that this crowd was screaming for his death. And later on, they say in verse 25, all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. In other words, it was as though they were pronouncing a curse on themselves, which, number one, they didn't have the right to do, and number two, really was totally invalid. So this verse particularly has been used over the years as a means of saying, see, they understood what the consequences would be. His blood be upon us and our children. In other words, we are going to suffer perpetually for what we did for being part of his death. So we see that part. Now, some very interesting things have been, were said by Peter. And Pastor Charlie, if you don't mind, I'm going to give a plug for your Israel trip. Okay? One of my favorite places to go to in Israel is the Southern Steps by the Old City. The Southern Steps by the Old City is where they would have entered into the temple. And there's a there's some of the steps actually date back to the time of Jesus. So you can walk on those steps and realize you're walking on the same steps that Jesus and Peter and Paul, all of the apostles, would have walked on. It's pretty overwhelming. But one of the things that you see at the southern steps are what are known as mikvah baths, places of immersion. And it is very likely that Peter's message on Pentecost because of so many people getting baptized all at one time, took place at the southern steps. And so Peter preached this message to Israel from Acts chapter 2. I just want to look at a couple of verses. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And so if you go with Pastor Charlie and Pastor Cliff, you can go to the southern steps and remember that this Pentecost message was preached by Peter very likely in that exact spot. Verse 22, this is Peter speaking to Israel. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered delivered over by the predetermined, notice that, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was God's plan all along. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So as Peter is speaking, there is this sense of placing blame to the people that he was speaking to. You nailed him to a cross by handing him over to godless men. In other words, handing him over to the Romans. Look at verse 36. Therefore, and this is kind of his conclusion, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, clearly we can 
see that Peter is placing, placing some blame here to the people he's preaching to on Pentecost. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. This is Peter having been arrested with John for healing a man on the Sabbath. And if you remember, it was the man who was begging for alms outside the temple. And we read this, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, Jesus the Messiah, the one from Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. And this is someone who was crippled his whole life. And so Jesus was the one who healed, and Jesus is the one you crucified. So by taking these verses, you can make a biblical case that the Jews killed Christ. But we're not going to stop there. You could also make a biblical case that the Romans killed Christ. I asked this question last night. Is anybody here of Italian background? Well, my dear, I forgive you for killing my Lord. My wife is Italian, as some of you know, and I always say that to her. I forgive you for killing my Lord. But let's look at some of the biblical arguments here. This is again back in Matthew, chapter 27. Beginning with verse 27, we read this. Then the soldiers of the, of the governor took Jesus into praetorium, and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. They took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. So clearly we can see that ultimately it was at the hand of the Romans that Jesus was crucified. And in this whole scenario, the only one who actually had the power to stop it was Pontius Pilate. He ultimately is the one who was responsible for the death of Jesus. He is the only one who could have stopped it. He is the only one who had the authority to stop it. And it was by his authority that ultimately Jesus was put to death. And listen to this. It was all for political expediency. That's all what it was all about. You read the history of the first century Romans. Pilate was a very, very ambitious man from everything that you read about. And he wanted to make sure that he had strong control over that area in the Middle East, over the Holy Land. And so... In Mark chapter 15, similar portion, we read the same thing, beginning with verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him in purple, and, the twisting, and, and they twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to acclaim him the king of the Jews. They kept beating him around his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off and put on his own garments and they led him, let, and they, and led him out to crucify him. And so we can clearly see that you can make the biblical argument that the Romans killed Christ. And again, there's no question that the only person in this whole story that had the ability to stop it, from a human perspective, that is, 
was Pontius Pilate. So ultimately, it's laid at his feet. But as you look at the scriptures carefully, you have to realize something very clearly. No human being had the ability to kill Christ. No one killed Christ. And I want to look at a couple of portions in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, the portion where Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says this, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I realized I went too far. But all that to say, no one takes it from me. Jesus very clearly says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. My Father has given these sheep to me, and I laid down my life for my sheep. The way a good shepherd would sacrifice himself for the, for the sheep that he was shepherding. And so, we see that from the perspective that Jesus is talking about his sacrifice. That he came to sacrifice his life. But just to show us that clearly no one could take his life away, I want you to look at this portion of John. Uh, in John 18. This takes place after the Last Supper, after that last Passover meal. Jesus celebrates it with his disciples, goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is overwhelmed with anguish and praise, and he sweats like droplets of blood. And then... The mob comes to take him away. And in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 3, we read this. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? So Judas comes not just with the guards from the temple, but also a Roman cohort. He came with a mob that included Roman soldiers. Nobody was going to stop them taking Jesus away. And so Jesus says, Who are you looking for? And their response, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Now you'll notice in your Bibles that the word he is italicized. When you see that in the Bible, what that means is it was not in the original language. The translators put it in there because they felt it made it easier to understand. And so they believed Jesus was just responding to the question, whom do you seek? We're looking for Jesus, and he says, that's me. That's basically the New Living Translation or something like that. I don't know. I am he. In the original Greek, and understand what I'm saying here, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, but the New Testament was written in Greek, and as they're recounting this, they use the Greek phrase, ego eimi. Ego, E-G-O, for those of you familiar with the word ego. That's where we get that from, myself. Basically, it could be translated, it is I, ego eimi. But in the Hebrew and in Aramaic, 
Jesus saying, I am, is using the same term that the God of the Old Testament used when Moses at the burning bush said, when I go to the elders of Israel and they say, what is his name? What should I say? And God says, I am. I am that I am. And so Jesus is declaring here in the Gospel of John that he is the I am of the Old Testament. In essence, Jehovah God. And as we continue, it says Judas also who was betraying him was standing with them. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So what is going on? Why would they fall to the ground? We're talking about a huge mob that's standing before Jesus. They're coming to take him away. And Jesus says, I am, and I believe at that moment unveiled himself. Just for an instantaneous moment. And when they saw the glory of God for that brief second, it knocked them to the ground. It just completely overwhelmed them. And so we read, therefore he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. So as we look at this, clearly you can see that Jesus could have stopped this at any moment. There is no way that anyone could have done to him what happened without him being willing to sacrifice himself. There was no one who could have killed Christ. And this is what he says to Peter in Matthew chapter 26. Turn back to that beginning in verse 51. The mob ultimately comes to take him away after this scene in John. And we read in verse 51, Behold, one of those who, was, who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now that we know was Peter from other gospel accounts. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you, not, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, a literal army of angels? And here's the key. How then will the scripture be fulfilled? which say that it must happen this way. It must happen this way. Jesus came to die. He came to lay down his life. And no one, no one could have killed him if he didn't allow it. So do we stop here? I don't think so. Because we have to all deal with a reality. And that reality is this. We all killed Christ. We're the answer to the question, who are the Christ killers? Every one of us. Because you see, the reason Jesus had to die that horrible death in that way was because he came to pay the price for our sin. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our, for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's what Paul wrote. Christ died for our sins. That's why he died. So we are the Christ killers. 
But the interesting thing, when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians was one of the first books of the New Testament. When he wrote it, there was no New Testament. And when he says, according to the Scriptures, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so we have to refer back to the prophet Isaiah and that incredible passage in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 <coughs> lays this all out. Listen carefully. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. And the word there, uh, your version might say wounded. Wounded is an okay translation, but it's a particular word that means to be wounded with a sharp object like a knife, a spear, a nail. And so, this is in the New American Standard, the, the writers decided to translate it as a piercing. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And, and those two words, transgressions and iniquities, uh, can be related to what we might call the sins of omission and the sins of commission. Things that we don't do that we ought to do, things that we do that we shouldn't do, those are all considered sins. And then we read this, the chastening for our well-being, the word there is shalom, for our peace was upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah goes on to say, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ultimately, Christ died for our sins. We are the Christ killers. We're the answer to that question, who are the Christ killers? Jesus literally became sin. He took on the sins of every human being, Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nations, every human being who ever lived, his sin was upon Jesus on the cross. And I have to be honest with you. I have no way of wrapping my mind around that. But in the end, as we recognize the reality that we are the reason Jesus went to the cross, I want to, you to, I want to encourage you to do something. And that is to understand that it's personal. See, we have an innate ability to depersonalize things. When I say Christ died for our sins, look at this room and it really takes it away from the fact that Christ died for my sins. He died for our sins. That's a true statement. I want to point to a cartoon. <laughs> that maybe you might think, what does that have to do with this? Well, I'll tell you. This is Lucy. If you, if you follow Charlie Brown, she is Charlie Brown's main foil. She's the one always getting Charlie Brown into trouble. She's the one when he went to kick the football, pulled the football back, and he fell on his backside. She's always having issues with Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown one day sees Lucy in this booth. Psychiatric help, five cents. And he says to Lucy, Lucy, why on earth would you want to be a psychiatrist? And Lucy very nobly says to Charlie Brown, because I want to help mankind. Very noble thought. I want to help mankind. Charlie Brown said, but I thought you hate mankind. She says, no, it's people I hate. I love mankind. <laughs> it's the individuals. And so we have to be careful, especially in light of what we're going to be celebrating over the next couple of weeks and remembering that when it comes to who are the Christ killers, it's me, it's you, individually. And we have to be able to say, 
Christ died for my sin. Christ died because I have a problem with my temper. Christ died because I do inappropriate things. Christ died because I steal time from work. Christ died because I have trouble telling the truth. And you name whatever it is that is your own personal issue. See what I'm saying? When we make it personal, it changes it. And then we could appreciate what the gospel's for. Then we can sing amazing grace. Grace and mercy are really two sides of the same coin. Mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. That's mercy. And that's great. But grace, (laughs) that's amazing. Because grace means we get something that we don't deserve. We get the blessings of being with Jesus for eternity. And it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? Could you do me a favor? This is a a brochure that you should have gotten in your bulletins. Can you take it out for a moment? Come on, I promise it won't be painful. How many of you do not get the Freeman's monthly prayer letter? Raise your hand. Come on, I know a bunch of you don't get it. Okay, this is especially for you. For those of you who get our prayer letter, you're, you're welcome to do this, but you don't have to. This is a way for you to receive our prayer letter, to be part of our prayer team, to be supporting our ministry in prayer, and maybe for some of you, perhaps to support it financially. That's between you and God. But what I'd like us to do now, if you don't mind, hold it up. Let me see. Come on. Can we still have time for the people who are late to come in? We're going to do an ancient Jewish tradition together. You ready to do an ancient Jewish tradition with me? Yes? I can't hear you. Okay. It's called the tearing of the brochure. So here's what I'd like you to do. Fold it a couple of times. Don't tear it yet. And then together, we're going to show how this church pulls together. We're going to tear it all at the same time and make this really neat sound. So you ready? At the count of three. One, two, three. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) This is for you to keep. This is information about Chosen People Ministries, and we are now in 17 countries around the world, uh, uh, reaching more than 90% of the Jewish population in the world. So you have this that you tore off. This is a way for you to be part of our prayer team, for you to be part of Uh, our financial support team. So I would ask you to fill it out. There's a basket on our book table out in in the lobby. Fill it out, bring it to the basket, say hi to my wife, Julia, and then uh, you'll be part of our prayer team. You'll receive our prayer letter as well as our monthly newsletter. Remember, we're going to be having tomorrow night a meeting with our prayer team and supporters to just talk about ministry uh, with chosen people. And so fill that out. If God is leading you to give to the work of Chosen People Ministries, we would love for you to do that. Uh, You can do that as well by dropping that in the basket. The book table. We have um, this book that I read from on anti-Semitism in the church is actually part of a bigger book called How to Introduce Your Jewish Friends to Their Messiah. And so how many of you have a Jewish person in your life? here in El Paso. Well, there's Jewish people mostly in the West End, but uh, they're here, and so I would encourage you to pray that that God might bring a Jewish person into your life uh, that you can uh, make an impact on. And A man from Texas about 45 years ago, about 35 years ago, prayed that particular prayer, and God moved him from Houston, Texas, to New York City. And the Jewish person that God put into his life was me. And he was the first person to share the gospel with me. So you never know how God will answer a prayer like that. But check out that book. We also have a book uh, called Israel's Holy Days in Type and Prophecy. This is a book 
that really deals with the feasts of Israel uh, that uh, I would encourage you to study, to see uh, God's prophetic calendar. We have two books dealing with anti-Semitism. One on anti-Semitism in the church called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Dr. Michael Brown uh, that I would recommend to you. And then another book dealing with anti-Semitism today by that uh, gentleman who works with Chosen People Ministries from France, Olivier Melnick, uh, that I would encourage you to pick up. He's, he's really become uh, a great writer and a real expert in this area of, of modern anti-Semitism and uh, its roots. And then uh, this is a book called The Gospel According to Isaiah 53 uh, that you saw Isaiah 53 that we just looked at. This is a great study for believers to look at this uh, Great Old Testament passage, probably the clearest presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament. And then uh, with Resurrection Sunday coming in a few weeks, uh, you'll be thinking about Passover. Passover actually this year is in April, not in March, so everything's a little backwards. But this is the Passover Haggadah that that you do the Passover service with uh, that I would encourage you to pick up so that you could do Passover with your family. And we have a number of articles of Judaica, particularly a Passover Seder plate that, that is a, a beautiful piece, as well as uh, some shofars, and Pastor Charlie would be happy to show you how to work it, because he knows how to blow the shofar very well. Okay, so be sure to go to the book table in the back, okay? So why don't we uh, pray, ask God's blessing, and I'll let you guys get going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your great love for us. We thank you that even while we were yet sinners, Jesus, our Messiah, died for us, that we might have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that perhaps there's someone here who has not yet asked Jesus into their heart and into their life, who's not yet reconciled the fact that none of us are perfect, that we're all sinners, and only by accepting what Jesus did when he died that horrible death on the cross and rose from the dead can we have eternal life. Lord, draw people to you as only you can, that they would acknowledge their sinfulness and and understand their need for a Savior. Jesus is our Savior. That's what he came to be, to be the one who would die on the cross for our sins. And so, Lord, if there's anyone who needs to do that, Speak to their hearts, even now. And Lord, for those who've already done that, I pray that you would encourage them, whatever's going on in their lives, as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection, something Pastor Charlie said we should celebrate every day, and I agree. The greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life that we're reminded of because Jesus conquered death for us. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible blessings we receive as believers. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.